Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D, and I am your host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBA Schooled. And I'm excited today because I have Dr. Britt Andreata, who is an internationally recognized thought leader who creates brain science-based solutions for today's challenges. And as the CEO of Seventh Mind Inc., Britt draws on her unique background in leadership, neuroscience, psychology, and learning to unlock the best in people and organizations. Uh, her courses on, Linda, on lynda.com and LinkedIn Learning have received over 10 million views worldwide. Um, and uh, Dr. Britt Andriana is someone who I've known for a while, and I like to think of her as the go-to for anything learning-related. Um, in business school, you obviously do a lot of learning, but what I also think is going to be unique this year in particular is that because so much is being done virtually and because of the fact that um, in business school, particularly for incomings, you're going to be learning a lot of new um, insights and new concepts. You know, that has a lot of impact in terms of your mind and your brain. And uh, because of Dr. Britt's background, I think she is uniquely positioned to walk us through and help us understand what's going on up in our head um, when we're learning these new things. So I'm excited to have her today to talk through some of that. So Britt, thank you so much for joining me uh, today um, on this podcast. Um, I'm so excited to have you and so excited to talk about something I know that uh, you and I both care a lot about. Um, so I guess just to start um, uh, at a very fundamental level, um, can you walk us through some of you know, what's happening in your brain um, when, you, um, when you're in a learning environment and you're exposed to a new concept or a new idea? Can you tell us you know, what's, what's happening and going on upstairs? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, let me first state, say that I've been a professor at a major research university for 20 plus years. I was professor and dean at UC Santa Barbara and also went to graduate school and got my master's and then also a PhD. So I, I totally feel for you. I remember my graduate school days and I know what it's like to, to jump in. So, um, But I also know from the teaching side and then after I left the university and became the chief learning officer at lynda.com, which is now LinkedIn Learning, that's when I decided to really dig into the neuroscience because it wasn't a thing when I was a student and I was learning about it just to improve my own craft as a learning designer. And that became my, my first book, Wired to Grow, which I recently did the second edition of. And the first edition was five years ago. And I thought, you know, it, I don't know if you know this, but a, a book can become a second edition by changing just at, at least 20% of the material. So I thought, okay, I'll just do a light touch update. Well, so much had changed in the research around what we know about learning in the last five years that it became a total redo. It's 80% new. Um, so I'm excited to share with you kind of some of the things that, that we now know, but understand it's a, it's a continuing field. So we're just really scratching the surface of what we understand about how we learn. So when you learn anything from when you started learning how to walk or ride a bicycle to when you sit down to learn an academic subject, you know, all the, all the stuff comes into you via your senses. So your optical nerve, your auditory nerve, your olfactory nerve, it's all a bundle of sensations that enter your body. And at first they go into short-term memory. And then if something significant happens, 
we can push that into long-term memory. But as we're sitting here right now, your body's you know, processing a lot of information that it's gonna throw away because it's not really useful. So when we sit down to learn anything, it's really about understanding how the brain does that because if we understand it comes in through the senses, it goes through the hippocampus, the hippocampus is the thing that pushes it into long-term memory. And now we have a whole new understanding of how memory actually works but ultimately, when you learn an academic subject, you got to pull it back out of your memory sometime on an exam or on an assignment. And there's ways we can do that to make it better and faster. So there's definitely tricks that you can use to maximize how your brain works. And, and ultimately, you know, learning is best when we become the star of the show, when we're the point of view person. So whenever we take material and shift it from an academic conceptual thing to something we have a real life experience with, whether that's you know, imagining ourselves solving a problem or connecting it to something we've actually lived through or doing an exercise or activity that we have to work with it in some applied way, that's really where um, we can really boost our retention of the content because it goes from being abstract to really kind of wired in our own life experience. Thank you for uh, thank you for that background. And I think that uh, that kind of resonates with me as I think about the learning experiences that I've had and just that notion of being able to be exposed to a, a concept, um, getting an example of it, but then getting some kind of exercise where you can either um, apply what you just learned or get have to further think about it in a way um, that just gets you more exposed to it, more comfortable with it. Um, and then, you know, hopefully over time, you are ready for that exam when you have to go and recall um, not only just when that topic came up in the class, but, oh, yeah, that exercise that I did um, where, um, you know, I, I was able to kind of apply it in a kind of way. And I, I remember thinking a lot about that when I was in school. But, you know, on that notion, you know, one of the things about business school that's unique, particularly for incoming students, is that typically in your first kind of semester, your first two quarters, they just throw uh, the kitchen sink at you in terms of all the new topics that you have to learn. So, you know, thinking about learning about accounting and finance and economics, like all at once. And for some people, that's a dream um, if you love those things. But for a lot of people, uh, one, one of those subjects alone could be incredibly challenging. But knowing that you have to do it all at once um, and maybe not having exposure to it before, um, that can be really, really difficult. So I'm curious you know, what's going on and what's happening when you're just being exposed to just a ton of new things? Um, you know, what's happening in your brain? Great question. So neuroscientists have uh, found that our brain organizes our memories into kind of these inv invisible file folders. So imagine just thousands and thousands of file folders in your head. And let's say you have an experience, you know, I traveled in Venezuela when I was younger and I ate this very small, sweet flavored banana. Um, I went there with pit friends from UCSB, all this stuff. And so that memory, that experience can actually go into multiple files. So if I think about foreign countries, it's there. But if I think about tropical fruit, it's there too. And if I think about UCSB, it's there. So what's cool about our, our brains is that it can store our experiences in multiple file folders. And that's why any one moment can trigger a memory coming up. It's kind of opened that file folder. But when you're learning new content, um, your brain's kind of looking for, do I already have a file folder on this? Where do I put this? And if you've already taken some economics, for example, in your undergrad days, it, you may already have a folder on it, right? And it can stick it there. 
if you don't have a folder on it, it kind of is floating a little bit. So really great teachers have used this kind of strategy for a long time. If you teach by using applied examples and or metaphors. So when I'm doing learning design, for example, I, I do a lot of um, training of executives at major corporations around the world. And one of the things I teach is change management. Well, I've used this metaphor of hiking or mountain climbing. And so visually it's woven through the whole experience. All the analogies are there when we do the exercises, because I know even if they've never gone mountain climbing or hiking in their lives, they know what it is. There's a folder in their head for it. So one of the things you can do for yourself is, is start to be kind of intentional. Is there a metaphor or an experience I can tie this to so that I'm, I'm building onto a memory I already have? The other thing that you can do is what's called priming. And priming has been shown over and over again to really boost retention of content. And essentially what priming is, is you, before you've learned anything, you take the test. So if there are, you know, sample questions at the back of each chapter or whatever in your textbook, go test yourself on the content. Even if you're going through the textbook and you're kind of covering stuff up and just asking yourself questions, you're going to get it wrong. It's okay. Don't worry about getting it wrong. But essentially when the brain is asked to come up with information it doesn't have the answer to, it creates the file folder. And then later when that piece of information is given to you, it attaches quicker somehow. It like it, There's a stickiness to it because your brain was waiting for the answer. So one of my favorite strategies to, to teach students, and I did this when I was at the university, is really look at your table of contents in your, in your books. You know, someone spent a lot of time writing that book, and they already thought through what are the chapters, what gets chunked with what, what are the headings, what are the subheadings, what are the bolded words. It becomes a map that you can use to kind of test yourself and also create those priming moments. The same is true for a syllabus. You know, each professor who teaches economics teaches it somewhat differently. So Professor A is telling you a lot about their personality and their priorities with the syllabus. They're telling you what they think is important. They tell you what order they think it matters, how they've broken out the assignments and what weight they give each of them. Those are all decisions that tell you a lot about each teacher too. And that can give you a lot of insight when you're preparing to study. Um, because they've already kind of shown you what they think is important and how things go together. So I would use your syllabus and your table of contents to create priming moments for yourself. And then also when you learn other great things are to create mind maps where you have like a concept and you draw the lines off of it so you can see the interconnections of it. And then the most important thing to do is, is what's called retrievals. You know, we stick stuff into our brains, that's learning. But when we go in and dig it out and retrieve it, that's where we really exercise our memory. So flashcards are great, teaching it to somebody else, summarizing it in your own words. Those are all examples of retrieval. And science has shown three retrievals yields the best, the best benefit, especially if those are spaced with sleep. So you do a retrieval on a Monday, then you maybe do another retrieval on a Thursday. As long as you've got an overnight sleep in there, it seems to really maximize the brain's um, ability to kind of lock in that learning so you can retrieve it in the future. Thank you for that. There's a lot of great um, insights that you had in there. And a couple of things I just wanted to, to highlight and point out. I love the idea of um, uh, looking for metaphors or analogies, if you will. Uh, I think those really resonate. And as a as a marketer by day, I think about that all the time as a marketer in terms of when I'm trying to communicate a message, you know, what's, um, you know, particularly sometimes when I have to do some talk about something that's complex, 
you know, what is like the common denominator that someone's going to really understand this? And a lot of times it's being able to pull on something like the image of a mountain or people hiking up it, right? Um, to what you were saying. Um, so I love the idea of, you know, when you're learning something, think about how does, um, you know, what's an example of this or what is, um, you know, what, what's something else that's a parallel that is very similar to this, just like a metaphor is. And then I think the other thing, and I remember trying to do this myself when I was in school is whenever I learned, um, whenever I learned something was just, if, if it felt foreign was asking myself, you know, what is the closest thing to this that I've, I've, I've experienced before. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's, it's, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it was proactively just trying in my mind to, and I didn't realize I was doing this at the time, but it was my, me and my mind trying to um, find one of those file folders to see if it was there. Right. And, 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 um, and I, and I think that can, you know, particularly help. And then I think maybe the last thing I was going to say is that when you were talking about um, retrieval, um, I also think particularly, and this will kind of segue nicely, um, things like study groups or going to office hours um, uh, can be really helpful because it, for, it, it allows you to, to, to proactively put in those retrieval opportunities um, yep. to, to reinforce you know, what you learned. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And the one thing that I would say, and I discovered this as a student, but then when I started studying all the brain science as a professional years later, it made sense. But as a student, my grades went up significantly. When I stopped studying, to, you know, I used to study like, okay, I'm studying the information, but my grades went up when I finally realized I have to get this. Like I have to, like Britt has to get it in yeah. her bones. Like, do I get this? Does this make sense to me? Do, do I really know this? different from memorizing. When I finally decided it was my job to put myself in the center of the content and I had to do the extra work to do that, my grades went up significantly because once you get it, like you can't yeah. unget it. It's kind sure. of like the pill in the matrix where Neo takes the pill and you see the world a new yeah. way. Once yeah. you get it, that cannot be taken away from you. Sure. No. And to your point, and I think one of the things that the MBA experience is really great about is that when you're in a classroom um, learning accounting, there's a really good chance that in that classroom, there's a bunch of certified CPAs who are there. And so when it, when it comes to, when it comes to not being able to unsee something, when someone who has literally done that job for the topic that you're learning says, this is how we looked at a balance sheet. Uh, that is a very, very real and very practical example to hear and to listen to. And so that is why I always encourage students either a if you are in a class where there are people like that, like for example, like in, I remember my economics class, I had a, a classmate who was from Korea and basically worked in the, uh, it's the equivalent of the fed in Korea. So oh. learning from him was if, number one, it was fascinating, yeah. um, but it was very real, right? Because yeah. he was like, here's how we thought about it. And it made things so much more real. And so I always encourage people when you're in a class and you do have classmates who um, have that direct experience to ask them about it. But the other thing that I encourage is that if, if you are a student who has direct experience in a class, raise your hand and speak up because it's probably going to help the person to your left and the person to your right when you can share and make that real because it will bring the retrieval, hopefully, to, to light. Um, so I think, I think that is a really um, unique aspect of the MBA experience when you do have students who come in with some real world, world work experience in particular um, functions or industries. Um, so on that notion... All of that stuff is great, particularly in an in-person environment. But as we all know, um, we're going to be pretty virtual for at least you know a while. And I think people are kind of coming in right now with varying degrees of familiarity with 
having to learn virtually. I don't think anyone's ever really done it all the time before. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could maybe share what are some ways that individuals can learn effectively, you know, in a virtual environment? Yeah, for sure. So, so two things, you know, as the former CLO for lynda.com, which was an online training company, like people can absolutely learn online. Okay. Like we can do it, especially if you have visual, uh, like video or live sessions or whatever. What's unique is that we're trying to, to live completely virtually 24 seven right now, which is exhausting. So zoom fatigue is a real thing. And so I want to give you some tips around this, you know, there's some things to be careful of. So yeah, you can learn online, but um, your body has to work way more learning online, particularly in an alive synchronous experience, as opposed to you're watching a video that was recorded a while ago and answering some questions when it's live. Like right now, I, you know, you and I are doing video, even though I know this is going to be a podcast, I can see you, but you are one inch tall. And I know in real life, Al, that you are not one inch tall, right? And my body can see that I'm looking at you on this little screen and yet my, my peripheral vision can see the rest of my dining room here. So I know I'm not really with you. Um, and our biology is designed for us to have a lot of this communication in person. And when we know we're not in person, we feel it on a really subtle subconscious level. We have to work harder. We have to work harder to read meaning. We have to work harder to process the data. Um, so that's why, that's why Zoom fatigue is a real thing. We're having to work harder biologically. So a couple things, take breaks. It's really important to take breaks. I, particularly because whenever we look at a screen, our body goes into a little bit of this frozen trance and we kind of don't move our muscles as much as we would sitting in a, in a auditorium, for example. Um, so it's really important, you know, set up a place for a standing desk, make sure you stand every, you know, set the thing on your watch or your, your phones, you stand every so often because sitting for a long time wreaks havoc on your body. Um, the other thing that I would recommend is treat your house like a little mini classroom and have a different subject in a different chair or a different room. So that when you go to econ, you do it in the kitchen. And when you go to marketing, you do it in the bedroom and when you go to whatever, so that your body's, because in real life you would do that, right? You'd walk across campus, you'd be in a different building for each of these classes. And part of your body then starts to affiliate that content, that learning, all this associated stuff happens with those different spaces. And so then when you're sitting in that space, taking the test, your body is kind of going, oh, this is activating all the stuff that happened in this room. So I would recommend doing a similar thing if you're going to school is like move around and create your subject areas so that you're sitting in these areas or standing in these areas and creating that associative learning. Um, in an ideal world, what we know about the brain is that the, the attention span naturally wanes after 20 minutes. It's just really impossible for us to focus for more than 20 minutes. Now, good teachers, good teachers who know the neuroscience of this stuff, will give you 20, 15 to 20 minutes of content, and then you, have, you do some kind of processing activity, whether that's having a discussion with your peers or taking a, you know, a quick minute to do a free write or do a quick little quiz or something. But if your teachers have not yet learned that, um, first of all, you can buy them my book and hopefully they'll get the clue. But <laughs> if they haven't learned that, just know that your attention span is going to waver. So you may want to set yourself just a quick one minute break, record it, step away, come back, jump back into the conversation, or just know that you're going to tune out every so often and you're going to have to go back in and fill up those gaps. Um, so try to give yourself those processing breaks and then really take a break between classes. Like 
shut the laptop, go outside, stare at, stare at a cloud, you know, do some, move your body because you would have done that in the real environment. You would have walked outside to get to the next class. So if you can step outside your house and walk half a block and come back, that's also good too. I think all those are great pieces of advice. Um, that said, living in San Francisco in a small apartment, my ability to do what you said about finding new rooms to take different classes from will be slightly hampered. But uh, for all of those who are not like that, um, I think it's a great idea. And to your point, it's mimicking what you would have done. And I think that is such a it's such a great uh, it's what you would have done if you you know were in the normal environment. And I think that's a a really great piece of advice. And then I think the other thing that I think about sometimes is that. Um, you know, I think about professional athletes, right? And, you know, when they step on the basketball court, when LeBron James steps on the basketball court and plays for 48 minutes a game, um, that's taking into account literally hours and hours and hours of preparing to make sure that he can be at his best. And when I think about what we do either in our jobs or, or, or in school or in class, um, we don't necessarily have to prepare like LeBron James does, but just that general idea of, when you show up to game time, you it will be you will be much better suited if you have done a little bit of preparing and understanding how you need what you need to do in order to show up at your best. And so, sure. to your point, you know it's finding the right environment, um, making sure to make note to take breaks. Um, all of those little seem you know they're they're little tactical things that we can do, but sometimes get overlooked. But when you do the work to kind of set that up right, it will. Um, it will help you just as it helps LeBron when he's doing all the things that he does um, to prepare to play at his best when he steps on the court. Um, yeah. And to your point about living in an apartment, like I, I remember those days. So it may be that you sit in one chair facing the window yeah, for econ, no, and then you sure. turn the chair and yeah, face it sure. away. And then don't forget sitting on the floor and yes. standing, you know, like yeah. an ironing table makes a great standing desk, by the way. Sure. No. And your advice is spot on. I was more making fun of the fact that I live in San Francisco and it is very expensive. Yes, I get it. Uh, but <laughs> that's, that's real. Students are going to be living in small apartments. So let's, of course. No. let's make sure it works for them. It, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, this is great. Uh, I think these are all really great actionable pieces of advice that people can take with them as they think about learning this year. Um, I want to uh, switch topics uh, for a second. Very related but very unique and not, I wouldn't say unique, but very prevalent in business school. And so particularly when you're being exposed to new experiences or being exposed to new uh, things, it's, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And the, the funny thing about, you know, business school, I find a lot of times is that you get a lot of very high performers, people who have done very well. And on paper, at least a lot of the reasons why they're there is because they have been successful. And so, Coming, particularly coming out of the gate, there's often this kind of um, struggle that they go through because part of the reason why they're sitting in that chair or sitting online in their home and being in that school is because of the fact of being successful. But then they have to get exposed to all these new things inside and out of the classroom, which are foreign in a lot of times. And it's very easy to kind of stumble and fall. And then, you know, when you do that, um, it, it doesn't always feel great, right? And so I think a lot of, and then the last piece of this is also just, recognizing and looking across and seeing like, wow, there's all these really smart people who are so much more accomplished than me and, you know, have done all these things and I haven't done that. And so the imposter syndrome comes in and I think, you know, where I'm going, going from this. And so um, I'm just curious, um, can you share a little bit about how you can effectively kind of accept or manage, you know, the fact that you're going to fall down, you're going to fail, uh, but 
also find the opportunity to kind of learn from that and, and move forward. Absolutely. So in my research, one of the things that really surprised me is that there's actually a brain structure. It's called the habinula and its job is to help us learn from our mistakes. So it pays attention to when we screw up and we usually know we screw up because someone gives us feedback, right? <laughs> like whether it's a performance review or a grade or someone just chewing us out, we've learned that we've messed up and how the habenula works is that it's designed to make us feel bad after we've made a mistake. And then that kind of feeling shows up again when we're about to kind of do that same behavior and it tries to steer us in the right direction. So if you think back to our, our tribal days, a lot of our biology is really just still related to us living as tribes on the plain, hunting and gathering for our food, right? So this part of the brain, you know, if I took a pathway and I found a food or water source, my brain would give me serotonin and dopamine, a feel-good chemical to reward me for that, that choice. And if I went down another path and there was, no ser there was no food or water source, the habinula activates and when it activates, it restricts the serotonin and dopamine. So it kind of cuts off the drip of the feel-good chemicals, thereby making you feel a little bad. So, you know, in, in, in practice, you come to that fork in the road and you just kind of feel like going down the one path and you don't really feel that motivated to go down the other path. So that's how the habenula works. With people who have chronic depression, the habenula is overactive. It's always cutting off the drip of serotonin and dopamine and you, you never feel good. The other thing that's really interesting is it can go so far as to suppress your motor neurons, making it difficult to literally make your feet walk the direction you should not be going. So, you know, if, if you've ever had the feeling like, I just can't get out of bed today, that could be right. It could be the habinula literally suppressing your motor neurons, making it difficult to move. So why this is important to know is that oftentimes, and particularly high achieving people, which I myself am, and I'm sure MBA students are too, you know, we set high bars for ourselves and we can beat ourselves up big time when we don't hit those bars. And yet the habinula will go a little crazy with that. So it's really important to counterbalance that with rewarding effort and progress. So you can counterbalance the habinula by every day you complete a class, give yourself a high five or a piece of chocolate. Every time you get your homework done, give yourself some kind of meaningful reward, whether that's social media for a certain number of minutes, going and doing something fun, even just gold stars literally work. The brain doesn't care. It just wants some acknowledgement that it's done some work. So I would say, first of all, just make sure you're tracking and rewarding your own effort and progress. And then secondly, don't ignore feedback. <clears throat> when I was a professor and creating a syllabus, there were multiple data points where students could learn how they were doing in the class, you know, how they got a, a grade they got on smaller assignments than the midterm than the final exam. And I was always surprised when people were surprised by their grade because it was like, well, there's been massive evidence all along that you're tracking at a C level. And between those early assignments where you were at a C level, you didn't change how you studied. You didn't come into office hours. You didn't, you didn't reach out for help. So why do you think that would magically turn into an A at the end of the class? You needed to do something different. So the other thing that I would say is particularly early on, you know, you're learning how to do school. You're learning how to do MBA school. That's different than your amazing professional skills you've had in the real world. And you may, you may stumble at it. But look at the feedback, that first couple assignments you get back, take them apart with a fine tooth comb. Why did you miss the answer? 
Where did you misread the instructions? Did you forget to do an entire portion of the assignment? Did you not see the date? What did you do? And then correct, self-correct. And as long as you're kind of tracking, here's the standard that I'm trying to reach, here's how I'm matching up against it, and what do I need to do to close the gap, you can ultimately get the grades you want. I mean, I ultimately, during my junior and senior year, became a straight A, A-plus student because I was always tracking where am I in relation to, to that marker. And for some classes, I had to really put in a ton of hours to hit the A, and for other ones, not so much. But I always knew where I was. So you have plenty of data to know where you are and then get help. There's lots of resources to help students. And it, what's interesting is the, um, the programs that schools offer, you know, like the study centers and the tutorial services and all that, they are most often used by the A and B students. It's the students looking for the extra edge that are really taking advantage of those services. That's interesting. Um, and thank you for sharing all that. There's a couple things that really that stood out to me that I wanted to unpack further. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right, particularly on the data points and the feedback and, um, you know, speaking from experience, uh, I know when I have to do something where I know that for whatever reason, it's going to be hard or it's going to be difficult. There are a lot of times in my head where I, whether I realize it or not, am purposely trying to avoid the feedback because I feel like I know where it's going to head. And it's almost as if, you know, you know, my brain is almost trying to protect me from getting to that getting to that, getting that feedback because um, I, I know it's going to make me feel like crap. Um, so what I really had to learn and what I've really tried to have, have to practice is to what you said is to focus on the effort and progress. And what I've really tried to focus on is the feedback loops, right? Um, uh, so for two reasons, number one, if something's really bad, it's really much, much better, particularly in the workplace to get that out first and in the open versus waiting till the end and it's too late. Number one, because you throw off your boss and your boss doesn't like surprises. But number two, because you know, it's what you were saying, um, effort and progress, right? If you get it early and realize it's not great, you have plenty of time to put in more effort and to make more progress. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's something that, you know, um, I think that's something that really comes to mind. And then I think um, the other thing that I, that I think about too, is like, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, I see a lot of the parallels and I'm sure you've probably heard this before with um, the growth mindset. Right. And just, you know, not yet. Right. Like, yeah, like I'm, I, I haven't learned it yet, but like, that doesn't mean I can't. Right. And so having an open mind and embracing that, I think is another thing that really is really um, I think it is, is really valuable um, if, if you can get around to it because uh, because it, it, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just, it just means you haven't done it yet. So absolutely yet is the cornerstone of a growth mindset. So, you know, always put yet on the end of your sentences and you'll know that there's still room to grow. Sure. Um, I, okay, great. Um, so one of the things, and I, we've talked a little bit about it, but with respect to, I guess the broader, I guess, um, not just academics, but just in business school in general, um, there's just this notion of just feel, constantly feeling overwhelmed, right? You're learning all these new classes. Um, you, are trying to find a job or find to figure out what you want to do next in your career. Um, there's student clubs and activities all over the place. It feels like there's always lots of great things that are going on. And it's just, it's very easy to feel like overwhelmed and overloaded. Um, you know, and it's very easy to get stressed, you know, because of that, either because you, um, you want to do all the things, but you know, you can't, or you, you have that FOMO of like, Oh, I'm going to miss out uh, on this great thing because I have to do this thing instead. 
and so I'm just curious, um, could you maybe unpack a little bit of, of how do you kind of manage that? Um, and, and um, you know, particularly from the, the idea of like what's going on in your head when you're being bombarded by like all these amazing things. Well, when you feel overwhelmed, it, you know, your body is telling you there's, there's too much going on. <laughs> so it's, it's good feedback from your body. Um, so a couple things. One of the things that the research shows really clearly is when we're trying to learn, we cannot multitask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the hippocampus, when you're taking information in, is kind of re- making a, a track of data. And if you're listening to the lecture, but you're simultaneously trying to read your email, it doesn't actually do those things at the same time. It goes back and forth. It's called switch tasking. And so what ends up happening is you don't get end up with a clear recorded track of either things. It has holes in it as you go back and forth. So just ditch the notion that you can multitask while learning. You can totally multitask while doing other things. Like I can talk to my husband, be cooking dinner, you know, giving advice to my daughter and, you know, singing a song. I can do that. But if I'm learning, you really want to give your brain attention, you know, the focus it deserves. So don't multitask while you're in a learning experience. That will, first of all, help you feel less overwhelmed. Second of all, you know, just, just know now you can't do it all. So get choosy. Get choosy about the three most important things. And even then, you don't have to do them every day. So yeah, having a great social life is important. Do you need to have it every day? Maybe not. You know, do you, being part of student clubs and activities? Yes, that's important. Do you need to do five or is two okay for now? And I would say particularly if you're in your first quarter semester is start getting the academics anchored first and then add in some of these other things because you'll get better at them. The other thing is just in general, and this is just true for life, the more we are stressed and overwhelmed, the more we need to dial up self-care. So our body can handle a lot if we're getting good sleep, if we're eating well, if we're doing some mindfulness, like mindfulness practices, I would say every student needs to at least have a 10 minute practice a day. And there's so many wonderful apps, but mindfulness really can help us learn better, relax faster, handle better stress. You know, we, we respond less dramatically to stress and we recover quicker when we go through stressful things. So if you haven't yet played with mindfulness, get one of the apps, you know, Insight Timer, Headspace, Calm, any of them are great, or just go out and sit in nature. Uh, The trick is you're not going to achieve some kind of nirvana. Really what happens is you sit there and you start paying attention to your breath and then you start thinking about your to-do list and the homework and the da-da-da-da-da, and then you notice it and you come back to your breath. And then a few seconds later, you spin off again. It's the practice of noticing and coming back and noticing and coming back that actually that is what meditation is. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And the longer those periods become of being able to stay in that state. And then don't forget play. Play is super important. And um, the good thing about being a college student, uh, whatever level you're getting is you have permission to play. So play is important. You just want to make sure that you're not playing to the, you know, playing so much that you're burning yourself out or, um, you know, neglecting your studies and you don't want to study so much that you don't play. So it's really about finding the right balance for you. And then the other thing is, you know, we all are very different. Like my daughter is a highly sensitive person. She, she's 
technically highly sensitive, which means her brain processes all data much more deeply, she can move into a state of overwhelm much quicker than I can. So some people need to be really mindful around how stimulating their environment is, how much they bite off. And if they're trying to compete with their friend or keep up with their friend who's wired differently, then, you know, then you might put yourself in situations that are really uncomfortable. So also just know yourself. Yeah. You don't have to be like everybody else. You're going to do you and do you and, and it'll all work out. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's, I think that's all great advice. And um, a couple of things that really resonated with me and what you just said. Uh, the first was, is that I, I, when you were talking about your daughter, I'm, I'm, I'm highly sensitive as well, technically. And uh, I remember having this a uh, couple months ago with my, I remember having this conversation with my manager and she gave me some pretty brutal feedback. And like, whenever I get brutal feedback on the spot, it's like, it's hard. Like as a highly sensitive person, it's like hard. But in addition to being highly sensitive, I'm also incredibly pragmatic and I have an ability to be objective. And so um, I knew everything she was saying was absolutely like, I could see it. I could see it from her perspective. I totally got it. But in the moment, it was soul crushing. And so like afterwards, like maybe a couple days later, she was just like, hey, like, are, are you okay? Like, is everything okay? Like, I feel really bad. And I was just like, no, like you, you like, you know, this is good because we're having the conversation, but like, you just need to understand that like in that moment, like it hurts a lot, but you also need to understand that like, I like as someone who is pretty objective, like I, it, I, I just need some time to process it and to like come to terms with it. And then I can move forward. And, and I did, and everything was great after that, but she, she literally thought like she ruined my life. I mean, and like, it, perhaps in the moment, my brain was thinking she did, but it was one of those, it was a really good, it was a really good thing to happen because we, we got to a better understanding of like, here's, here's me and here's how I show up and here's how I engage sometimes. And it's, um, it's not that uh, you ruined me. It's just more of just, this is how my mind works uh, and, and how, how I process. Um, well, you find it funny, Al, to know that when scientists want to study the habenula, the, yeah. the brain structure that does that thing where it cuts off serotonin and dopamine, the most consistent way they can study it is to put someone in a performance review. <laughs> so yeah, just yeah, know totally. that biologically, you know, she activated your habenula. It's sitting there going, oh no, we screwed up, we screwed up, and it was cutting yeah. off serotonin and dopamine. And for those of us who are sensitive or like I ex- I experienced a lot of trauma in my childhood, so I yeah. can get triggered really easily when sure. I feel like I'm in trouble with people. So once I learned that about myself, I would tell my boss, like, if you've got feedback to give me, give it to me at the end of the day. Yeah. I am not going to respond. I'm just going to be sitting there trying not to cry. And then I will think about it overnight and then I'll follow up with you the next day. But I had to kind of craft the best way for me to hear feedback because um, otherwise, you know, I could get really triggered and defensive and I don't want didn't want to be like that, but I also needed to kind of take care of myself. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think to your point on that, um, you know, a lot of times, particularly in business school, um, like you, you, you get lots of feedback and I think that it's just going to happen. And sometimes it happens where it's direct. And sometimes the feedback is that uh, or direct from like another person or a professor or an instructor, or sometimes that feedback is, uh, sorry, you're not moving on to the next interview or sorry, like, you know, like you didn't make it to the next round. And so I think the important thing, um, that I try to help people understand is that, um, this is part of the experience that you signed up for, right? I mean, you don't sign up for a performance review. You kind of like, you, you get that, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't get a choice around that one. Right, but like part of 
part of taking a leap and going through this experience is the chance to learn and grow through these opportunities, which involve, involves these feedback moments. And um, in the moment when they may seem like huge disappointments, um, you know, try to keep in mind that like, this is part of the process and, and that um, there's something to be learned you know, from it. And that, um, you know, while performance review may sink you, you know, the whole point of being in an, an environment of higher education is, is to learn, or one of the points is, is to learn. And uh, to, I, I tr- really try to encourage people to, to keep that in mind because um, there is, uh, number one, it's probably going to work out in the end. So there's that piece of it. But number two, there's so much you can take away from those moments that can help you kind of um, the next thing you have to do that can help you make that progress. It can help you uh, change your effort in a way that gets you to a better outcome. So, um, yeah. For sure. And the other thing that I would add, and I'm, I'll be curious to see how this kind of unfolds in a virtual environment, but, you know, one of the things that I learned as a student was like, you know, I was assigned a TA, but sometimes other TAs were better teachers or they were just a little bit more gentle and kind. I would go to their office hours, not the one I was assigned to. Sure. Uh, same with professors, you know, professor A teaches economics, professor B and C also teach economics. You kind of hear which professor is going to be a better match for you. Sure. And so, you know, where you can make choices and find the right people to guide you or support you go for it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Britt, um, this has been great. We've covered a lot of ground, um, talking a little bit about brain science, talking a little bit about learning new materials, doing so in a virtual environment, how to manage mistakes and how to, really um, navigate some of the choice overload in, in business school. And so I really, uh, I really appreciate you joining me today and, and sharing all this great uh, knowledge and insight and research um, about something that I think is really, really important. Um, if people want to learn more about you, you know, where can they find you or where should they, where should they go? My website is my name, brittandriata.com. And that is the link to everything I'm up to, my books, my speaking engagements, my courses. And then I'm really active on LinkedIn. So please connect with me or follow me there. I'm posting regularly on topics related to learning and leadership. I spend a lot of my work coaching executives at some of the biggest corporations around the world on how to, how, you know, best practices and how to bring out the best in their organizations and, and uh, win at their business. So MBA students, I think will would enjoy a lot of my work that way too, because it's really in the business, business sector. Hi everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA insider podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.